The question before us this morning is simply this, for whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? The answer might not be as obvious and as simple as one might think. This morning we intend to think deeply upon the intent and extent of the atonement. The intent or design or purpose of the atonement and the extent to whom did the atonement atone? To whom was it offered? We are in part three this morning of our five-part series on the doctrines of grace. Part three, the middle doctrine of the five is Christ, what I will call Christ definite redemption. In the TULIP acronym, this is limited atonement. It's unfortunate wording. I think we are better served by thinking in terms of Christ's definite redemption. And beloved, I will say to you, as I have sung out my heart this morning in praise, I will say to you that in my theology and in my belief and in my doxology, this is the centerpiece ruby surrounded by the glistening diamonds in the doctrines of grace. This, beloved, is the blazing sun in a solar system of sovereign grace. We come to not only the middle of the five doctrines of grace, but as it were, the most precious and the most glorious. If you haven't been with us, we are working our way through these great doctrines that take the gospel to its depths. They're they're not required to be believed to be a Christian, to be saved. They are the gospel in its deepest expression. We move this morning from redemption needed to redemption planned to now redemption accomplished. We move this morning from part one, man's complete corruption, total depravity, to part two, uh, God's unconditional election, to now Christ's definite atonement or Christ's payment for the sins of the elect. And I will readily say and admit to you that this is the most difficult of the five doctrines of grace. This is the most controversial of the five doctrines of grace. There are some who call themselves 4.0 Calvinists. I understand. I get it. (laughs) I had a seminary professor at the Master Seminary called himself a (laughs) 4.95 Calvinist. And I get that. I understand that. I appreciate that. This doctrine this morning is... um, causes us to understand that there are many verses, many verses that need careful exegesis and exposition from their context. And and that's really outside our scope this morning. This is one sermon. And we're going to be pinpointing really two passages in 1 Peter. There are gobs of verses that need to be carefully studied in their context. In fact, in the last year or so, I have read a 700-page scholarly tome on this subject alone. 
titled, From Heaven He Came and Sought Her. And so this is deep, deep waters. I will readily admit that the other four doctrines of grace are more clear. They are more strongly supported by explicit Scripture. And I will tell you that personally, of the five, I embrace this one last. It was a process coming to see these things in their clarity in my own life. And this one was last in line. And yet, I will also say, it has become, in my heart of hearts, the most precious. Even though it is not as clear, perhaps, as the other four, I would submit to you that it is clear enough. And I would submit that it reflects this Christ's definite redemption. It reflects the emphasis of many passages of Scripture. We've heard from some already from Isaiah 53 and the reading of John 10. And there will be others as we make our way through. Here is the truth then, the plain truth as I see it, that I want to set before you this morning in the form of a proposition. It is this. The death of Jesus was a definite redemption of specific persons known as God's elect. It was not a definite redemption for the non-elect. Let me repeat that. The death of Jesus was a definite redemption of specific persons known as God's elect. It was not a definite redemption for the non-elect. I want to seek to prove that proposition this morning with two proofs. Proof number one comes from 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. If you'll turn there with me. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2. If you're visiting with us, we went through the book of 1 Peter verse by verse, line by line. Took several months to do that. And now we're coming back and we're discovering within this short epistle all five of the doctrines of grace. And today we are once again in this introductory section of 1 Peter verses 1 and 2. Here is proof number one, and then I'll read the verse. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. Definite redemption was the intention of election. Proof number one to my proposition is this. Definite redemption was the very intention of election. So look at 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen or elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. If we isolate some of the words in this phrase, we would have this. Who are chosen to be sprinkled with his blood. Do you see that? If we take out the other quali- uh, descriptions and qualifying phrases, what we are left with for today's purposes is this. Who are elect to be sprinkled. Who are chosen to be covered. Now, last week, we looked at the word chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We saw that His election of us is based upon His love of us in advance, a love that was set upon the elect in eternity past, a love that God has always had for His own. That is the idea of foreknowledge in the Bible, and that was last week's sermon. 
please, please go to our website and, and, and review those if you will. Uh, we have those posted on our live stream section there. We looked at all of that last week that based on a foundation of eternal love, God then elected completely corrupt individuals. And what I want you to see here this morning is they were chosen to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with His atoning blood. What we need to see from this verse is that there is a link then between chosen and sprinkled. That there is a connection between those foreknown and those forgiven. They were chosen then to be sprinkled and this speaks of purpose. And behind purpose is always design. Let me illustrate. Cars are built to be driven comfortably and safely. And of course to be sold. Cars are built to be driven comfortably and safely. That's the purpose of a car. Now, behind that purpose is everything that goes into design, intent. We sit on soft seats, not brico blocks. We drive cars with round wheels covered with rubber, not you know squares, you know, not wood wheels. Everything is about driving this thing comfortably and safely, and so every aspect of design somehow or another, goes into those purposes. And so it is with God. There is a purpose in election. There is a design in election. Let me review it a little bit from last week and pull it together with this week. In eternity past, despite our complete corruption of all people, God set His unconditional electing love upon certain individuals and passed over the rest passed over the rest to let them go do what they want to do. To let them pursue the sin that they love to the full. When God chose, He chose out of a corrupt humanity. All were corrupt. And the ones He did not choose, He simply let them go their own way to exercise their will in sin to the full. It's as if all of humanity was is is rushing off the edge of a cliff into self-destruction and God in His grace chooses some to rescue and allows the rest to go on off the cliff. Then in time, God sent His Son to perfectly atone for the sins of this group to actually redeem the chosen, listen carefully, not just make them redeemable. He actually redeemed those He had chosen, not just making them redeemable. Again, the proof is this. Definite redemption was the intention of election. We could say it this way. The intent and will of the Father in election and the intent and will of the Son in redemption are one. They are not at cross purposes. They are in total agreement. The father picks and the son purchases what the father picked. And since the father didn't pick all, the son doesn't purchase all. 
it's very common in human history, isn't it, for fathers and sons to clash. <laughs> it's, it's almost inevitable. Fathers and sons are not going to see eye to eye. They're not going to be on the same page. They're, they're not going to think things ought to go the same way. They're going to have different, um, <laughs> different curfews. They're going to have different ideas about the way things ought to go. And so fathers and sons inevitably will clash. But beloved, this father and this son have never clashed. They have never been at cross purposes. They have never been at odds with each other. They have never been on different pages. The father and the son have one will, one intent, one mind, one purpose, one goal. It's always been unified. They, they read off the, the same page. They're, they're accomplishing the same mission. They, they're, they're building from the same blueprint. Definite redemption was the intention then of election. This is supported by John chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. Here's a summary of much of John chapter 6. The Father has given a people to Christ. Christ will give his flesh and blood for them. And if he redeems more or less or different, you with me? The Father gives a people to Christ. If he redeems more than that, less than that, or different from that, then he is at cross purposes with the Father. And beloved, that is impossible. Jesus said himself, I always do the will of the Father. Jesus loved the Father. Jesus obeyed the Father. He lived for the will of God. That was his mission in coming into the world. He would say, I came to do his will and do it he did to the full. Think about it this way. God the Father then, God the Father is always in the driver's seat, both among men and among members of the Trinity. He is always the one in the driver's seat. We might want to illustrate all of this in this way. Those who are in Christ, those who are saved, have gotten on the salvation train. God the Father is driving the train. God the Father is the engineer, and he lets on the train whomever he wishes. It's his train. It's his heaven that we're going to. It's his right. It's his right as God as the one who owns the train and the destination, to choose who will get on the train with him. But those chosen can't afford the ticket. Those chosen don't deserve the ticket. Those chosen haven't met the standards of the engineer. And so the engineer himself offers up his son to pay for their ticket. The son, as it will, gets run over by the train. To pay for every last soul on it. The fact that God is the engineer, God the Father drives the train, fits the God of the Bible. If you read the whole Bible from God from cover to cover, you will soon discover that this is who's presented to us in the pages of Scripture. We will see things like this, that God determines the end from the beginning. And God does everything according to His plan. That there is nothing random that takes place in the history of the universe. Random is a lie. Random doesn't happen. There is no fate. There is no luck. There is no random. There is a God of the universe who sits on his throne and everything that comes about is according to his ordained plan for his creation. Beloved, there is nothing that is without design. There is nothing that is without intent. There is nothing that is without purpose. This is the God of the Bible. Listen to the prophet Isaiah speak of this God.
Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And then in the context here, God calling Cyrus, a pagan king, to come and discipline Israel. He says, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Surely I will do it. That was about Cyrus in punishing Israel. But I would say to you that this is how God works. And surely this must be true about Christ and his death on the cross. Surely This must be included, that that the very death of Christ could not be an exception to God saying, surely I have planned it, surely I will do it. Definite redemption then is the wise intention of election. Or I might say it this way, I believe in definite redemption because I believe in election. Does that make sense? Beloved, this is a marriage made in heaven. Unconditional election and definite redemption walk hand in hand. They are best friends forever. This is literally a marriage made in heaven. So our proposition is this. The death of Jesus was a definite redemption of specific persons, not a definite redemption of the non-elect. Proof number one, definite redemption was the intention of election. Proof number two... Stay in 1 Peter chapter 1. Proof number 2 is this. Definite redemption was the real result, not the wish, of Jesus' death. In other words, when Jesus died, something was accomplished, not hoped for. Something was done, not just made potential. Definite redemption was the real result, not wish, of Christ's death. Look at chapter 1, verse 17. Again, this is ground we've covered in detail, but we, we go back to see this truth. I want to read verses 17 to 21 of chapter 1. And if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now look carefully, verses 20 and 21. For he, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared, has become manifest, In these last times for the sake of who? You. You who through him are believers in God. In other words, Peter is saying he has appeared in these last times for the sake of believers. Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's unpack this a little bit. Christians, 
once they're on the train headed to glory, are called to behave while you're on the train. Called to live a certain way while you're on this ride. And what we're told here in verse 17 is that the engineer will one day judge every single passenger on the train impartially. And he will judge us according to two main categories. He will judge us based on our conduct and he will judge us based on our service in our journey. How did you behave for me and what did you do for me? What were your ways and what were your works? And this will be an impartial judgment Verse 17 indicates, and it will be according to each one's work that is to be done in the fear of God. Now to motivate this godly behavior, to prepare us for this day of impartial judgment from the train engineer, if you will, Peter reminds us of the cost of the ticket. He reminds us what the Son of God did in our place so that we could even be on this train. And he uses the word here in the past tense, knowing that you uh, he's using it in a negative way first, but he uses the word redeemed, doesn't he? You see that? Redeemed. That word in ancient time takes us back to a place. It takes us to a bad place culturally, but it takes us back to a real setting, and that setting is a slave market. That setting is a trading block. And this word redeemed speaks to what happens on that slave market. The buyer would come along, and he would not make a general deposit. Now stay with me on this because this is the uh, uh, important distinction. In an ancient slave market, the buyer wouldn't make a general deposit and say, okay, whichever of you slaves wants me to redeem them, come draw the price out of the redemption bucket. No, they're slaves. They have no rights. They have no authority. They have no abilities. They have no claims. They have no anything. They are slaves in shackles. They can't freely move about the country. They can't even leave the platform. They're slaves. All they can do is, is just be slaves. What actually happens is the Redeemer comes and says, I want that one and that one and that one, and here's the price for each one of them. You three come with me. When God looked out at the world, all people were seen as slaves under the dominion of sin. All people have, a, have an unpayable debt that they owe to God. But in definite redemption, God the Son paid that specific debt on behalf of those to whom were chosen. On behalf of the chosen to whom it was due. So this payment was made by God the Son to God the Father. God the Father set the price, and God the Son paid it. We need to think about it this way. Atonement is first and foremost a legal transaction between God the Father and God the Son. It is first and foremost a payment between the two members of the Godhead. Where the Son pays the redemption price for those that the Father had given Him. In other words, this is a real payment for real people. This is what is meant by definite redemption. Can we say it this way? Payment accomplished, not payment attempted. Payment 
accomplished, not payment attempted. We were literally, really redeemed at the cross, not made redeemable by the cross. I don't know how else to say this. I want, I, want, I want a paradigm shift to take place in your mind perhaps this morning. That you've always seen the cross as something that was just potential. That it was like a down payment. That it was like this nebulous, generic banking of some kind of funds. And, and then you just freely go over and draw them if you wanted to. No, rather the cross was a literal payment for your sins, believer. This is so important that we understand. It was not potential, it was actual. Listen, the cross is all triumph, not try. There's no trying at the cross. There's just triumph. There's just accomplishment. There's just redemption. Jesus Christ did not open the first bank of possible redemption with some vague investment or down payment. Rather, for those who would come to address God as Father, verse 17, He actually redeemed them with His very blood, verse 19. If you address as God the Father, remember that you are redeemed with precious blood. Acts 20, 28 says, Shepherd, uh, Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders, Acts 20, 28. He says, Shepherd, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Shepherd, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. 1 John 4.10 says this, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John the Christian, writing to Christian readers, says that Jesus hears the propitiation for our sins. Revelation 5.9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you, Jesus, were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So if we go back to 1 Peter, we see that Jesus arrived on the scene. Jesus was manifest, right? He comes into the world, and he lives his perfect life, and then he goes to the cross, and he goes to the cross for whom? For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. Beloved, the first coming is the story of the eternal Son of God coming into the world to redeem his bride. The second coming is the story of the eternal Son of God coming back to the world to rescue his bride. Just like in every wedding, it's about the bride. It's always about the bride. Ephesians 5 says that Jesus is the Savior of the body, the church, and so that Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her, Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Even our song this morning we sang has this great line, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Or we can change the analogy It's about the sheep, not the goats. John 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my own and my own know me and I lay down my life for the sheep. He says it again and again. Fellow sheep, can I say this to you this morning? Our sins, fellow sheep, our sins put him there. Our sins held him there and our sins banished there. Because he said it is what? Finished. It is complete. It is done. 
It is over. It is finished. Not started. Accomplished. Not attempted. Triumph. Not try. There is no try with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has never tried anything. He's all accomplishment. All champion. All power. This is why the angel said to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. Not he will offer his people salvation. Not he will make his people savable from their sins if they will just cooperate with the provenient grace of God. He shall, will save his people from their sins. Beloved, he is the one who promised, I will build my church. The one who promised that is the one who will save his people from their sins. When we think of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, we ought to think this is redemption accomplished, not redemption hoped for. This is redemption done, not redemption offered. This is not a wish, this is a reality. Look at chapter 2, verse 24 of 1 Peter. Two twenty four. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you, believer, were healed. He himself, a real person, history, in time, a literal, actual, specific human being. He himself, no one else. And he did a real act. He carried, he bore, he took upon himself our sins, plural, our, referring to believers, sins, all of them, real sins of real people. He himself bore our sins and he bore them in his body. He took them upon himself, paying our penalty, suffering our death on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. The death of Jesus Christ is not a hospital where you go for healing. The death of Jesus is our healing. The death of Jesus is our healing. For by his wounds you were healed. You were. By his wounds you were redeemed. By his wounds you were forgiven. Done. Saved. Ransomed. And in a sneak preview of next week, look at verse 25. Those who are so healed, those who are so redeemed, will eventually respond in repentance and faith. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now have turned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. First, he bears our sins, and then in time we turn. The puzzle ought to be coming together for us then. We go from complete corruption 
unable and unwilling, dead in our sins, to election, unconditional election based on God's love, to redemption in time at the cross of Jesus Christ where he bore in his body our very sins, to response, verse 25, a response brought about by the grace of God. That's next week. As R.C. Sproul so, uh, so well equipped, he said, if you get on the train at T, you don't get off until P. That's the TULIP acronym. If you get on at T, total depravity, you don't get off until P, perseverance of the saints. I want to close this morning with four theological reasons why you should believe in definite redemption. Four theological reasons beyond these verses, beyond the passages that could be looked at, why you should believe in Christ's definite redemption. Reason number one, because God is just and does not require double payment for sins. God is just and does not require double payment for sins. I just ask you a series of questions to consider as you wrestle with this truth. Did Jesus die for the whole wide world, meaning every human equally, redemptively? Did he die for Pharaoh, for Jezebel, for Goliath, for the Assyrians? Did he die redemptively for Judas, for Hitler, for Stalin, for the 9-11 terrorists taking down those planes? In what sense could Christ have paid their full penalty to God for their sins and they also pay for them for eternity? Why would God require them to pay for their sins in hell if Christ already paid for them on the cross? And if he did pay for their sins on the cross, why are they in hell? Why is anyone in hell if Christ died redemptively for all people? They are in hell because he didn't die redemptively for all people. There may be some sense in which Christ died for the non-elect. That's a great mystery. It's an unclear teaching of Scripture. There may be some bearing that it has on them. There may be some effect that it has on them before God. But when we talk about redemption, we're talking about a purchase, a ransom being paid for individuals. God is just. God does not punish both Christ and the sinner. Either Christ pays for that penalty or the sinner pays for the penalty, but not both. Because God is perfectly just. This is a theological reason to embrace a definite Redemption or atonement. Number two. Number two. Because God would never waste the death of his son. Again, we go back to design and we go back to intent. We go back to the plan. If the design of the cross was simply and only to make sinners redeem a bowl or save a bowl, then we have to acknowledge that it's possible Theoretically, that none are redeemed. If it only does so much, if it only makes people redeemable, then there is the possibility that it would be all for nothing, that it would be wasted. I ask you the question, are you willing to believe that the death of Jesus could have saved no one? I'm not. I'm not willing to believe that. God did not waste the blood of Jesus on Judas, the son of perdition. 
Jesus died for the children of God scattered abroad, not the children of the devil who would only mock and scoff for all eternity. In a sense, that would have been casting his pearls before swine. He gave his precious blood emphatically, definitely, particularly, unquestionably for his bride, for the sheep of his fold. I believe that God is too wise and God is too sovereign to risk wasting anything, especially the life and blood of his very own son. If we believe that his death only made men redeemable based on what they would do in their own free will, then we open up a can of worms that says, potentially, hypothetically, this could have been wasted because everyone could have rejected. Everyone could have walked away. Everyone could have thumbed their nose at it. And none would be saved. And so there it was, the most precious, the most precious son of God dying on a cross for nothing. I just cannot, I cannot fathom that that could be in the mind of God as his as an intent. Number three, third theological reason. This one more Christological, I guess. Because Jesus is a champion without peer. This is one of the reasons why this doctrine is so precious to me. And I love this doctrine because I love the Savior. I'm not saying if you don't love this doctrine, you don't love the Savior. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this is what it has done in my own heart. As I've come to terms with, with the teaching of Scripture on this. Jesus is a champion without peer. Whatever... He sets out to accomplish, he will accomplish. That's what I'm trying to say. Jesus never fails. Jesus never tries and isn't successful. I believe in a definite atonement because I believe in Jesus as the atoner. That he offered himself in the place of his people. Listen, you've heard this language before in doctrinal statements. If you, if you like the words vicarious, substitutionary atonement, that's the language of definite redemption. Vicarious, substitutionary atonement is definite redemption. Can I say to you this this morning? All of my Christian belief rests right here. I am a sinner. Christ loved me and died for me personally. Christ paid the penalty for every sin I have ever committed or will ever commit and paid for them specifically and directly. He did that in my place. He did that for my sins. My Christian belief system comes to rest on Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's where this comes home to the heart. I would also speculate that perhaps it's most precious because I can connect to this better than I can connect to election or effective call. It's hard to get my mind around election, something that happened in eternity past before there was time or people. It's hard to see what's going on in the effective call with the working of the Holy Spirit. That's next week. But here is something I can understand. Here is something I can sort of get my mind around. Not, not why, beloved. I don't understand why. But what I can understand is a person being guilty and having a penalty thrust upon them by a just God and then somebody else stepping in their place and saying, I will take their penalty. I can understand that. My mind can get, a, get its hands around that. Can't you? 
Can't you understand a hero pushing a helpless soul off of the train track? And taking the death? Versus somebody that just goes and stands on a train track and says, I'm just going to get run over for nobody, for no reason whatsoever. I mean, the first one is salutary. The second one is suicide. The first one is a hero. The second one is an idiot. <laughs> right? So he's, he's pushed the helpless, blind person out of the way of the track and takes the hit for individuals. My name is graven on his hands, written on his heart. He knows his own. And I believe he knew him from all eternity and he knew he was who he was redeeming at that cross. The great mystery in my mind is what bearing the cross then has on the non-elect. And that's for eternity and for God to sort out. Fourth. Again, these things are degrees. This is not an issue of salvation. This is not an issue of do you love God and love the Word and love the glory of God. I see these as things of degrees. And I would just submit to you finally, number four, that I believe embracing this, believing this, brings maximum glory to the triune God. I believe that this most glorifies the Father who planned it and the Son who accomplished it and the unity that they had in that plan. They had a common intent. From design in eternity to accomplishment in time, from intention to completion, God's glory is maximized by a definite redemption of His chosen ones. And it's real simple. Mission planned, mission accomplished. It is finished. And so is this sermon after these words. Three verses from our Great Isaiah 53. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Let's glorify the triune God as we hear this. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, if he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul... He, God the Father, will see it and be satisfied. By His knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot Him a portion with the great, and He will divide the booty with the strong, because He poured out Himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet He Himself bore the sin of many and interceded. For the transgressors. Lord Jesus, thank you for interceding and dying on our behalf. Thank you for pushing us off the train track and taking the wrath of God in our place. We praise you that you are a champion of redemption. There is a Redeemer, Jesus. God's own Son. Father in heaven, may it be this morning that you would, by your Spirit, draw, pull, and drag that resistant soul this morning to the foot of the cross. May they look up and say, here I am forgiven. Here I have been redeemed. May they look up and see today with the eyes of their soul 
that Jesus didn't just die on a cross, but that Jesus died on the cross for them and for their sins. Thank you, Lord, that you died for sinners. By your wounds, we are healed. We pray in your name.